Hi, everyone. Welcome to Oscar Wilde, a podcast about film, always counting down to next year's Oscars. I'm Nick Rorkraut. And I'm Sophia Simonello. And we have officially made it to another award season. It is underway. We are here. There are nominations to be talked about today, and we will have a few of these podcasts in the future as well, but award season roundups of different movies that we haven't talked about yet so far this year that are a part of the conversation. And those today include All Quiet on the Western Front, The Banshees of Inishirin, and Bardo, False Chronicle of a Handful of Truths. I will never get that right. It's a tricky one. Yeah. But before we do talk about these movies, nominations for the Gotham Awards came out. So we'll be talking about those and what's different about those versus some of the other ceremonies that will be coming up very, very shortly. Yeah, we're finally here at award season. Fall festivals at this point have really wrapped up. The AFI Film Festival in LA is really the last big one that we have. And after festival season ends, we really just head into award season with nominations and winners being announced. And the Gotham Awards are really, I think, the first step that we get. They are not Oscar precursors. Let's just get that out of the way. I think when these nominations came out, we saw, at least I saw some people really worried about certain movies not being recognized in more categories or thinking that this meant something for the Oscars. In reality, like these are for independent films. They're for films with lower budgets. They are more aligned with critics' prizes. And also, the most important thing, each category is often decided by a different jury. So some categories will have juries that overlap, but we don't have many people who are deciding who gets nominated. Now, sometimes like these groups, they very much like have their finger on the pulse and they know what they like, but it's not at all representative of the Academy. So just keep mm-hmm. that in mind as we talk about these. But I was excited by quite a few of these nominations. I mean, my favorite movie of the year, Tar, had the most nominations with five. For me, it was exciting not only to see Tar get into the best feature category where we only have five nominees, seeing it get into screenplay, of course, but our three actresses got in. So I think people were sort of expecting Kate Blanchett to get in anywhere right this season. Mm-hmm. At least I'm hoping for that. Still my favorite performance of the year. But Nina Haas and Naomi Merlant both got into outstanding supporting performance, which I was so excited to see. And as a reminder to the acting categories at the Gotham's are gender neutral. So we have 10 nominees here. Um, but they're non-gendered categories. Yeah, I think with supporting especially, like if this were the case at the Oscars, do you understand how exciting this would be as a ceremony? Thrilling. Let's end it here. Let's just stop award season right now. These are our nominees (laughs) (laughs) that we have to choose from. So after Tar, we had After Sun with four nominations. Paul Mezcal made it into the lead performer category and Frankie Corio who plays his daughter, is in the Breakthrough Performer category. So they were both nominated, along with the film being recognized in Best Feature and Charlotte Wells, the director, who made it into the Breakthrough Director category. We both saw this at New York. We talked about this a little bit a few weeks ago. After Sun, what's interesting here is that it really is sort of solidifying itself as the indie hit, as 
a movie that I think we can count on, you know, popping up in critic circles, popping up in the Independent Spirit Award. It's had that effect on people, especially because, you know, this is Charlotte Wells. It's her first feature film. And we have Frankie Corio as a breakthrough performer and as a younger performer. So I think there's a lot of room for this film to be recognized. And it does already sort of seem like this is the small movie that people are latching onto and really connecting with. So I think we can expect to see a lot of it throughout the season. I don't think we will have the Oscars. I think this is a movie that isn't necessarily something that connects with the Academy, but I guess never say never, but I, I think we can plan on seeing it throughout critics ceremonies for sure. I'll probably make this parallel throughout the season, but I feel like it's this year's come on, come on. It is similar in some ways. Mike Mills obviously is a much more known director and he's been around a while, but again, that didn't show up at the Oscars at all. But After Sun feels like a much smaller film with a bigger punch. And Joaquin Phoenix is also a huge star, Oscar winner. Um, and even that couldn't make it. So still go out and see it. As it's been coming out, friends have been seeing it and saying really good things. So it's great for this movie. The other indie turning into a hit is The Inspection, which showed up next with three nominations. I think this is great for that film. And here we had the director again getting nominated in Breakthrough Director, Elegance Bratton, and then two supporting performances for Raul Castillo and Gabrielle Union. I think it's interesting that Jeremy Pope was left out because I feel like he's showcased in the trailer. I haven't seen the movie yet, but I'm excited for it in a dark way, I guess. But it looks like a show-stopping performance from him. But again, I think another film that could sustain itself throughout the season. Yeah, I saw the inspection at New York Film Festival, and I'm also surprised Jeremy Pope wasn't recognized. I thought he was quite good in the movie. He really carries it. But I will say that Gabrielle Union, I really liked her in this movie. So I'm hoping that she's recognized throughout the season, even if it's just at ceremonies for independent films. Um, or even Critics' Prizes, I feel like she she was really good. So I'm happy to see her here. But these two movies that we've just talked about are both A24. A24's other big movie this season is Everything Everywhere All at Once, which was nominated in Best Feature, Outstanding Lead Performance for Michelle Yeoh, and Outstanding Supporting Performance for Ki Hui Kwan. I wonder if After Sun and The Inspection can go all the way if... A24 has everything everywhere all at once, which I think they've clearly noted is their priority this season, barring Mm. the whale, which we will get to in a few weeks. Honestly, I still don't know what to make of it for the Oscars because it just feels like something that is, it's different. And I don't know how they're going to respond to it still. But I think this is a good sign for it that people are thinking about it and taking it seriously. A24 has just had so many movies this year and that, I mean, would usually be a good thing. Like your studio is doing amazing. You're putting out good work that people are liking. But when it comes to award season, it's usually not the best sign because we also have After Yang showing up here in surprising categories, amazing categories. Yeah, I mean, I was so excited to see that Colin Farrell was nominated for that. I think it's just such a wonderful, quiet, beautiful performance from him. And that screenplay, 
Koganada deserves to be recognized by more awards bodies for his work. He has a perfect GPA of movies for me. Everything he touches is just perfect in my eyes. I'm glad I got recognized somewhere. Right. I feel like it could in screenplay in one of those really surprising nominations that that's the only thing. But Oh my god, don't. Again, that's maybe false hope. But the other A24 film is Marcel the Shell with Shoes On and like can it actually get into animated, which is also a question and something A24 has to decide on if they're going to push that or not, because I think it could get in. I hope so. It should also get into adapted screenplay. Isabella Rossellini for supporting actress. (laughs) But yeah, excellent slate for May 24. My overall takeaways, though, like this is a great group of nominees. I love most of these movies that I've seen this year. And just to see Tar in multiple categories, to see Santo Mare recognized in international feature, mm-hmm. I need that run to continue all the way to Oscar. And these documentaries, All That Breathes, All the Beauty and the Bloodshed, I Didn't See You There, The Territory, and What We Leave Behind. At this point in the year, I haven't seen any of these yet. So that's good for me to look at this list and say, like, these are five movies that I definitely need to prioritize because the Gotham juries have good taste. It's also worth pointing out that we do have tribute awards every year. So this year, Michelle Williams and Adam Sandler will receive tributes as well as the cast of Oscar Wilde favorite Fire Island. Amazing. Also not awards that translate to Oscar potential, but deserving actors nonetheless. My last question about the Gothams. Mm -hmm. Lena Dunham was nominated for Catherine Called Birdie, which is really good. I'm not kidding. This is a great adaptation. An adapted screenplay is very thin, so it is not out of the question that she gets in at like WGA and the Oscars. I was going to say, will she ever be an Oscar nominated writer, director, actor, do you think? I think it's definitely possible. (laughs) This is her best shot to date, for sure. Okay. So I guess our other big update today is that for the 95th Academy Awards, we are returning to IP... Jimmy Kimmel will be hosting once again. How do we feel about this? I'm really torn. I think on the one hand, I am just frustrated because Lady Gaga threw her hat in the ring and said that she wanted to host and she would have been an incredible host. And Mm -hmm. they just should have gotten her because that woman is a born entertainer. She loves movies and she clearly respects the Academy. And that was something that was sorely missed last year. So I'm sad that they didn't have more creativity there and really go for it. I'm happy that they planned ahead. I think that's a good sign for the ceremony that they're actually planning things far in advance. They're not leaving it until two weeks before when they share that they're, they're picking hosts that clearly were like the 80th, 81st, and 82nd choices. But, you know, Jimmy Kimmel hasn't really impressed me in shows in the past. I think they're going with a really safe choice because they were scared from what happened last mm-hmm. year and how messy that got. Yeah, I, I I don't know. I mean, last year he was complaining about the power of the dog being boring and how Spider-Man No Way Home should have gotten in. And that just, to me, doesn't seem like a step in the right direction for a host. He also does these bits that I just hate. Like when they showed up to that movie theater and surprised all of those moviegoers and took 15 minutes out of the ceremony. Like, I don't want stuff like that. I just want the categories back on the live telecast. So I'm really mixed on it. I mean, it's good that we have a host this far out, but I, I'm i just kind of bored by it. Yeah. I don't really understand where 
the decision to choose him came from. If he is a late night host, he's not appealing to younger viewers. I don't know like where his show skews, but I'm assuming it's older or like, you know, mid thirties and above. And I think what we've been saying over and over and over again is how the show needs to incorporate younger viewers, social media in some way, which is a whole nother thing. So that really just confuses me. And the other thing I really don't like about it is that his whole thing from the Emmys with Quinta Brunson, you know, having that whole debacle and now he's promoted to Oscar host. It's not saying anything good. I don't think he deserves it from that. I think the Emmys were well-produced, but again, that has nothing to say about him. So it's a little frustrating to see that transition happening. And in terms of like past years, I couldn't tell you what year he hosted or what happened, you know, nothing that memorable. He was the La La Land moonlight year. That is one thing I will never forget. Faye Dunaway needs to host. That's how That's how we save the Oscars. Lord almighty. I just need you to imagine Faye's opening monologue, what she would say. I don't even know. It'd be crazy. But we're following up with another Chazelle year. So, hmm, fascinating. We already know one of his <laughs> jokes. There you go. And we'll always have other performers and announcers. So I'm not really too worried, I guess. But I'm worried. They know. have to prove themselves to us after last year. Like that Godfather tribute, the in memoriam, like they really have to step it up this year. Honestly, the Eminem performance still like scars my <laughs> memories. Was that the that was the, we watched that together? Ago. That was the Parasite yeah. year. Mm-hmm. Wow, I think it's time to talk about some movies. <laughs> I guess so. Let's do that. First off, we'll talk about All Quiet on the Western Front. This movie was adapted from a book. There have been other adaptations. But if you're not familiar, it's about a young German soldier's terrifying experiences and distress on the Western Front during World War I. It's directed by Edward Berger and stars Felix Kammerer, Daniel Bruhl, and Albrecht Schuck. So the story itself is told in first person by a German soldier. So here, that is Paul. And it was pretty controversial at the time of its release in 1928. So this was like right before Hitler came to power, and it was written by a German vet. So it was very controversial seeing this anti-war perspective come out from a veteran. And the book itself was actually banned by Hitler during World War II, was burned, like a very shocking history behind this. And then also at the third Academy Awards in 1930, the first adaptation won Best Picture and Director. So... The Academy is aware of this material, and I think this update is brutal and bleak, but also beautiful. It's very dark. I don't think it's going to fare well to a lot of Academy members, but it is striking to watch. I mean, you really go through it. These battle sequences are probably some of the best war sequences I've ever seen. I mean, it it takes out all of the romance out of what there can be from a war film, namely like Saving Private Ryan. I mean, there are friendships among the soldiers, but they're not using that to heighten the movie in showing that, you know, war is war. It's luck. It is unnatural and it is unforgiving. And that is 
everything that is happening in this movie. And by the end, you are just, I don't know, completely barren of any kind of feeling because it is it is a lot and it is long. It's like two and a half hours. What did you think about this movie? How do you think audiences will fare at home watching this on Netflix? Oh, okay. That's a different question. I saw this in a theater. I really wanted to see this in a theater. I highly, highly recommend. Like, if it is in your area, it is still playing in some theaters here. I know we're lucky in New York to have a lot of these Netflix movies in theaters for us, but it is one of those that is this epic theatrical experience, mostly because of the sound. It's not just the gunfire. It's how this team makes everyday objects sound like gunfire, like a typewriter or a sewing machine. The uniforms, like every every little sound sounds like something you would hear in wartime. So I like how the sound in the movie makes you feel like war really is this all-encompassing thing. Like it's something that mm-hmm. in wartime, whether you're on the trenches or you're you know in the offices, like the Daniel Brühl character, or you are mending a uniform that a dead soldier once wore. War is all around you. It's totally inescapable. And I feel like this movie really, really understands that. And I was surprised, I think, to learn that it had never been adapted in German before because it Mm. feels like something that it's this, you know, the Eric Maria Remark novel is, like you said, controversial and it was a banned book, but it's also a classic and it's a key text for Germans. So I always assumed that there was some sort of German version out there that I just didn't know about or hadn't seen. But no, this is the fact that it's the first German adaptation is big. And I also was just really surprised because I have never seen anything by Edward Berger before. And it felt like this movie was made by someone who was incredibly confident to make this sort of war movie on this scale it is brutal like you said but i feel like it also has moments that understand the beauty surrounding the war in a way that doesn't make it not anti-war it's just sort of observing what's going on around it Um, it has a lot of shots in it i think that are actually very malik like I When I watched mm-hmm. it, I was like, oh, yeah. Edward Berger likes Terrence Malick. The part of the movie where I instantly knew it was going to be a riveting but very sad, bleak experience is how they capture the boys at the beginning. When Paul is enlisting and he just seems like a kid. He's so excited. They're all filled with these like romanticized notions of what the war will be like. And then you see how quickly that all fades away when they're thrown mm-hmm. into the trenches and how it's it's not a game anymore. It's not something where it's patriotic and exciting and some masculine way to defend your country. It's just brutal and terrible and senseless. And you, you feel that right away in the movie. So it is it is a very long ride if you are not I think prepared for how brutal the movie can be I think audiences could struggle with that but as far as a war war film goes it is I think it does pull you in so I think if audiences know what they're getting they might stick around but anytime a movie is on Netflix it is just a hard a hard sell because you've you're watching it at home yeah 
we keep repeating that it's brutal, but it's not meant to be that way. I think some movies also do that to like assault your senses Mm -hmm. in order to make a point. But the camera is just placed in the right moment at every time. And I love that. It's getting to see this firsthand experience. It's mirroring the narration of the novel. And I think getting to see the actors do certain things. At one point, a soldier is trying to drown Paul. And once he comes up and the mud dries on his face, like all of that makeup or whatever they put on his face, it's not blatantly anti-war, but you start to feel how these men feel. And it is just so depressing. And they convey all of their emotions really, really well. I mean, you see the transition in the beginning from when they're overly excited to very quickly, like you said, um, thrown into battle. And I have like one problem with that is like, this is 1917, the war has been going on. I know there were zero forms of communication. So like they had to have known that the war was leading to massive and massive numbers of deaths. So like to be excited to do that, I don't know. Maybe I, I, <laughs> maybe I think this is just, I, I think that's just like <laughs> your modern perspective. Really. I mean, back then for World War One and World War Two, mm-hmm. it was something where people were eager and very proud to go to the lo- front lines. I mean, people even still are today. It's just couldn't it's a me. foreign concept. Yeah, couldn't be me either. <laughs> I'm, I'm so, so good not doing that. Um, but I think another thing this movie does really well is most recently 1917. We are following British soldiers, English soldiers. And it is always easy to empathize with people who are not German in the war. And this movie makes you empathetic to these German boys because you feel how absolutely ridiculous this all is and how they're fighting for nothing. And it's so painful to see that. And I feel like a lot of that is due to Felix Kammerer, this actor, his performance, I think he's so good in this movie. I like if there was a just world, he would be nominated for things this year mm-hmm. because I thought he really was a standout. Like you can feel every single emotion. The one thing, can I tell you what I didn't like as much? Mm-hmm. I did not think we needed the Daniel Bruhl scenes. I understood what they were there for. Yes, but me too. The intercutting took away entirely from the movie and it like elongated to the point that it probably didn't need to be two and a half hours yeah i get that decision to show these political leaders who aren't in the trenches yet they are the ones who make the decisions and i get that but it it feels like we don't for me it feels like we don't need that i would rather it be focused um on our soldiers on the front lines. I feel like it would have been much more effective. Part of the reason I'm saying this is because maybe I'm a purist. I do really like this book. And knowing that this wasn't in the book, this was an addition to this particular adaptation, makes me question why the choice was made. Maybe it was for a break for the viewer. Like maybe they wanted to get us out of those trenches or out off of the battlefield for a little bit. Mm-hmm. I get that. But for me, they felt sort of purposeless. I think it adds to the anti-war sentiment, too, of these leaders who live in luxury. You know, these 
men in the trenches are eating the same thing. They talk about this turnip sandwich they had for like breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and he's just sick of it. And then they cut to the leader who, when they're going to talk about this armistice, he goes to one of the waiters and says, are these croissants fresh? Were they made today? So you see that dynamic and it does hit you. Like I, I didn't hate them, but I think we could have used less of that for sure. It also kind of hits on this, like from the Emancipation Proclamation of like, you know, the news didn't hit until later. And at the end, we have this other thing that was also changed from the novel. But overall, I'm very positive on this. And I would recommend that people check this out. Again, like set aside time, note you're going into, but it is really beautiful, really well made, a amazing technical feat. I love the effects, the cinematography, the production design is so intricate. I just wanted to pause and like look at these sets because the camera also moves so you can see almost 360 of these areas. So that kind of shows that there were large sets compiled and they had free reign. So it took a lot of planning and development to actually implement all of these fields, the trenches, where they move, the bombs, like, oh my gosh. Yeah, I I completely agree. I would definitely recommend checking this out. Again, I want to reiterate, look and see if there's showtimes in your area, if Netflix has any theaters in your area, or if there somehow are showtimes. Go see this in a theater. It is worth the experience. But if you have to watch it at home, it's still a good home viewing experience, I imagine. Mm -hmm. You know, you watched it at home and it worked for you as well. So I think you're right. Just set aside the time and know what you're getting into. But I think that Edward Berger really proved that it was worth it to make a new Mm -hmm. adaptation of All Quiet on the Western Front in German, in its original language. So, yeah, I, I really like this one. What do you think about awards potential for it? I think it could show up. I don't know about big categories like picture director screenplay, but it is Germany's submission for international feature. I think it has a decent chance to make it on the shortlist. And like I just said, I would love to see it in technical categories. I really think it could be up for production design. Cinematography might be a stretch, but I think it would be deserving to show up there. What about you? Do you think it could actually show up? Because people were putting this into their picture predictions a while ago. Yeah, there was a time when I thought maybe. But unfortunately for this movie, Guillermo del Toro released a movie called Pinocchio. And I think that that is going to be Netflix's major priority. So I think here we can start talking Mm -hmm. about Netflix a little bit. Netflix has such an interesting slate this year. You know, normally they have a film like the Irishman or Roma or the power of the dog, these epic films that get a lot of nominations, but don't really connect with voters and end up taking home one or two or zero in the case of the Irishman Oscars, but they have major festival runs. They get critics prizes. And this year Netflix doesn't have a big horse in the race like that. I think they thought maybe Mm -hmm. it would be Bardo, a movie we'll talk about in a little bit. But this movie really did get great reviews out of the gate when it premiered at TIFF. And it also, according to The Hollywood Reporter, I read that it was in the Netflix top 10 in 90 Mm -hmm. countries. So Netflix 
their stats are hard to contextualize sometimes. It's hard to know what to make of them. But clearly, you know, people were watching this movie. And as the Academy becomes more international, it's definitely possible that this could show up. I think for international feature, that's already shaping up to be a strong category. But I personally will put this in my international feature predictions. The Academy does love war films. This is German and they tend to like European films as well. So I feel like this getting into international feature, it has a pretty good shot. But I won't be surprised either if I see it on the shortlist in technical categories. I would love to see it in sound, especially um, production design. Like you said, it would be really cool if it showed up at a guild for that. Um, so I hope I'm hopeful that the work is recognized because I do think it is great work. This would be my choice for the overlapping sound editing noms. Mm. I would love that. Do I think it's going to happen like at a 2% chance right now? (laughs) (laughs) But I think, yeah, it would deserve it. So if you could give this movie one Oscar, what would it be? I would give it to production design. Let's do that. I think the way they created these sets, all of these areas where the soldiers are really transported me as a viewer into this other world very, very quickly. And I think it's what captivated me the most, apart from Paul's performance specifically, and maybe the direction, the cinematography. But I would probably watch this again just to look at this movie again. What would you give it? Yeah, no, I think that's a good pick. I also really liked James Friend, his cinematography. Our DP, he's Mm -hmm. mostly only shot... He has a couple of features a while back, but mostly short films and TV shows. So this is a major, major project for him. And I think he did a great job. But I think I would give it sound. I was really, really impressed by the way that the score is incorporated and how they captured those war sounds and really just made everything reverberate (laughs) when you're watching Mm -hmm. it. I think it's, it's an experience that I won't forget when I think of movie watching this year. I loved the score. And it's like more like music. At times, it's this like really deep electric sound that was also very different. Yeah, I like that. Okay, it's time to talk about The Banshees of Inishirin. This is Martin McDonough's latest film. This is about two lifelong friends who find themselves at an impasse when one abruptly ends their relationship with alarming consequences for both of them. This stars Colin Farrell, Brendan Gleeson, Carrie Condon, and Barry Keoghan. Some awards so far. So at the Venice Film Festival, Colin Farrell won Best Actor, and Martin McDonough won the Screenplay Award. I loved The Banshees of Inisherin. I thought this was a fantastic movie. As someone who did not love Three Billboards, Martin McDonough's last film, I was really just thrilled by my experience watching this movie. I was filled with every emotion possible. And I feel like it is just such a, it's a beautiful tale. It's a sad tale about conflict and life and mortality and about what you value and how you can feel trapped by a place and by a time. And it's a film that lingers. I love films like that where you watch them And you think you know how you feel about it. You leave the theater, you go do something else, and then you wake up the next morning and you're thinking about the movie. And it just stays in your head. You start 
having new questions about the movie and wondering why certain characters made you feel the way that they did when you were watching it, but maybe make you feel differently now. I think it's really rare to have films like that. So I just, I loved it. I thought it was really beautiful. And yeah, I'm so, so happy to have a film that is so original, so funny, and also just so, so well-written. I thought this was beautifully written. What did you think? It really is a film that surprises you very early on. If you've seen the trailer, then you kind of know the premise more than what you just read of like Paul Rick is Colin Farrell and he's annoying the hell out of Colm, <laughs> Brennan Gleason by just talking to him. Because one day Colm is just like, I don't want to be friends anymore. You're boring. I, I need to think about my own life. But Paul Rick, like, <laughs> he doesn't get it. He no. can't leave him alone. Mm-hmm. He's like this puppy who just doesn't listen he keeps coming and he's like stop it i'm gonna cut my fingers off if you keep annoying me and he plays the fiddle and he's trying to write this music he has a really beautiful line of dialogue at one point about how music stands the test of time and he wants to Mm -hmm. be known as this composer after he dies and to think that he's losing fingers you know his playing fingers is astonishing and when you think about a script i i never would have thought that it could have taken it there. So I also really love what McDonough is doing here. His whole filmography is quite eclectic. So I like that he's kind of taken a step back, a very meditative, contemplative piece here that even though we're younger, like I think can still resonate with us and trying to see like, okay, where where are our lives going? Mm-hmm. What does our legacy mean? What is the meaning of life and death and after death? Like there's so many expansive themes and ideas here that he has achieved so well on this tiny island outside of Ireland with like six or seven characters in total. I think it's imaginative, it's inventive, and it's really smart. Yeah, Inisharan is this fictional island off the coast of Ireland. It's not real. Martin McDonough created this. And I feel like that's important because I think that what I love about this this story is that it does function as this great allegory for a civil war, for something that's happening right on the coast, right? You hear gunfire mm-hmm. throughout the movie. It's it's a distance away, but you hear it. It does have an effect on them, right? This takes place um, during the 1920s um, while the Civil War was going on in Ireland. And the fight that Paulrick and Colm are having is just as senseless as the Civil War. War can be as silly and as ridiculous as someone saying, you know what? I'm not going to talk to you tomorrow. All of a sudden... I hate you today, and I didn't hate you yesterday. And it can have no explanation. It just is what it is. And Mm -hmm. all of a sudden, everything is just, as they would say, feckin' terrible. (laughs) I love how often they say feckin' in the movie. It's so great. But I love that, and I love that it feels like this, this fable, because you have also this woman, Mrs. McCormick, who, if you've seen images or stills from the movie, or if you've seen the film, she always has this hood up. She looks like a Mm -hmm. witch type of character. And a banshee in Irish folklore is, it's a creature who, if you like look at pictures of banshees in 
Irish legends, they look similar to Mrs. McCormick, but it's a it's a spirit who comes in the night to tell you that a death is coming. And that is what this woman does in the story, literally. But the title itself, The Banshees of Inisherin, also refers to the song that Colm is writing. And what I love about this movie also is that Martin McDonough, and I think this got him into trouble a little bit with Three Billboards, but I think it works in really amazing ways here, is that he doesn't really buy into the hero-villain binary. He shows you how each character can have redeeming qualities and qualities that make you understand them, but also qualities that make you frustrated and annoyed by them at times. I think if you look at someone like Paul Rick, right, like you were saying, I mean, he's beautiful Colin Farrell. Like he has these like gorgeous eyebrows and he's just like looking at you like a puppy and he means well. He's this nice guy, right? He keeps saying, like, what? what is the problem? What's wrong with being nice? I always thought it was a good thing to be nice. But he also can't get the point. <laughs> like, he doesn't listen to people. And he clearly, he's a little bit dense. You can tell him a million and one ways not to do something, but he well, will do it he's anyway. the original himbo is what it is. That's why I'm drawn to him. I can't help it. <laughs> And he's grown, so yeah, he's just, everything has left his brain. I mean, they call him dim so many times. I and... know. <laughs> and dull, dim and dull. Well, I'm I'm firmly a Siobhan. She, I think, is a good representation of the type of person who just needs to get out of that type of environment, right? Like, this mm-hmm. island is just, it's very cloistered, and there's just nothing there for her. She would rather be with her books than really go out and meet anyone or try to make any sort of like new life there. She is just sort of, I don't know, she's going through the motions until she finds something else for herself. And it, what's really sad is when later another character tells her that nobody likes her. And you can see how sad she is in that moment. Um, so I love how this movie just makes you, it just makes you feel a lot. It makes you look at things in different ways that maybe you haven't beforehand. And I think that's where it succeeds the most. But yeah, I also love her. She's just brutally honest. I mean, really early on, Paul Rick tells her what's going on. And she's like, well, maybe he just doesn't like you anymore. Maybe he just wants to be alone. And she like gets it right away. So while she is kind of this backbone to Paul Rick and a much stronger sister that he needs... She does need to live her own life. And I also resonated with like her being conflicted of leaving or staying, you know, having her family here and growing up there and knowing this world versus leaving, getting a job, going to this foreign land because she knows she wants to, but it's scary. So it's those inner battles of her, but all of these characters, the writing is definitely sharp in that sense. I mean, we haven't even talked about Barry's character, who... I know. He's great. Quirky kid. You know, he's gone through some stuff in his life, too. But he also allows Paulrick to bounce ideas off of. And I think their conversations are the most interesting in the movie. I think we get more out of them explicitly than between Colm and Paulrick, but very different. It's it's interesting because... Dominic, Barry Keoghan's character, is 
the true like dunce character of the movie Mm -hmm. like he is sort of that like typical what you would get in a shakespearean play of like the fool in town so even if paul rick is considered to be dull and dim-witted there's dominic who is i think much more difficult in that way you know just the way that he carries himself and how he talks to siobhan and just the stories that he tells and the ways that he communicates but it but what's interesting like you said is that you know because we know that there's this conflict between parik and Colm, they don't really talk to each other besides just a few on a few occasions because a lot of it is the silent treatment and <laughs> just him telling him <laughs> to get away from him so we learn a lot more about the conflict through the conversations between Paulrick and Dominic. And that's something that I I found really surprising in the movie because you are learning, again, so much from these two characters that are supposed to be the dull ones. Yeah. And I love how talking about Colm, Colm Sonny Larry, they have great names in this movie, um, Brendan Gleeson's character. What I was really struck thinking about at like the 24, 48 hours post viewing is... The idea of what kind of life you want to lead and what you want to leave behind. Because ultimately, the Colm character, he's older, and it's clear that he has started to think about death in more of a real way than Paul Rick has. So I started to think to myself, okay, one of the interesting things that this movie is saying is, do you want to have a life where you are remembered as a nice person and you are just a good person? Or do you need something like art to leave behind? Do you need to create something that makes you immortal in a sense? And to Paul Rick, he doesn't understand that about the art. He's fine with just being nice. But for Colm, as he's getting older, he says, you know, no one remembers nice people. Like, why do people remember Mozart? They remember the work. But what he's doing is... He cuts off his fingers and then he can't even make music anymore. So I love just how it makes you think about things like that. You know, like if he's so concerned with what he leaves behind, why is he so stubborn and resolute in doing something that is just to prove a point to Pa Rick? But also, why does Martin McDonough show him gathering with some of the worst people in Inisherin? You know, he leaves... Paulrick behind and he's hanging out with this cop mm-hmm. who is horrible who treats his son Dominic terribly who is a, a cop so he's just automatically bad Martin McDonough hates cops in his plays and his <laughs> his movies so yeah it's it's a tricky one in a good way I, I love the questions that it brings up like why would he rather spend time with him and these other people who are creating music than around a nice person who just bothers him and is it okay for someone to bother you and for you to just say you know what this is sort of a waste of my time i'm done i've had that feeling before like i think mm -hmm. i think that's real in another way like why did he never move to a more cultural place where he could socialize with more of those people more readily Mm -hmm. and knowing that it's right in the distance like it's it's Mm -hmm. right there he could he theoretically could go if he wanted to And maybe he realizes it's that's too late. 
maybe he had before. We don't get any flashbacks, nothing like that, no backstory. Thank you, Martin McDonough. It makes you think about all of those questions and things about their personas and relating that to your life. I think it's more open-ended to make it relatable and to have people have these conversations about it, whether than just give one story, one answer to this fictional story itself. And we haven't talked about Jenny the donkey, but one of the yeah, greatest animals yeah. in film all year. She's so cute. <laughs> and I do love Paul Rick's connection to animals. That is, I think, a very well-written additional detail for this character, that he would really care about the animals around him. And that is ultimately, right, like why someone like him stays on Inisherin. But I think this movie also asks the question of, like, what happens to you when everyone leaves you that quickly? When, like, your whole world can change just like that overnight. And that's exactly what war can do, too. So I like that it is this... Like allegory for war and it works very well for me the way that the donkey is always inside the house it's like this dog to him Mm -hmm. it's very sweet so oscar potential i think there's more here than the last movie we discussed Mm -hmm. what do you think how many nominations oh i think just starting at the top this is definitely going to get nominated for best picture i feel Mm -hmm. like it has searchlight behind it people are really liking it part of me does worry about general audiences you know maybe finding it a little too dark but when I saw it with a crowd they really were into it they were laughing I heard a man on the way out say that was his best movie about Martin McDonough so (laughs) I'm hopeful the audiences will respond really well to it too but yeah I think I think this is definitely going to be one of our 10 and for best picture Mm -hmm. I'm very happy about that I'm not sure about director yet because I don't know how that branch necessarily sees Martin McDonough. He hasn't been nominated for director before. Um, Famously, he missed the three billboards year. I know this is a different year. Every year is different, but I am not quite sure about that yet, but I definitely have him in for original screenplay. I think that first and foremost, like this is an achievement in screenwriting. I think it is brilliantly written. It masters its tone so well, and I think every character is well-written, It is, I think, again, like a really tricky story to master and to tell Mm -hmm. in this way. And I think I think he nails it. So I really hope he gets into original screenplay. And I think especially here, like it's not just the script. It's not just the words. It's about the locations and setting up these scenes and the dynamics, the characteristics to these people and animals even like it's everything together that really succeeds it's not just what is said which is sometimes what I think is awarded here but this is definitely I mean I also have this in right now and I think this is one that is like very smart in every way that it comes together and how it ends the ending is so good you leave the theater in such a unique way I love when you kind of just sit and like slowly walk out at the end of the credits Mm -hmm. like you're not rushing out you just want to like feel it and take it in I think also score we can talk about Carter Burwell who was nominated before for three billboards with McDonough so I think those parallels there definitely could happen again but he was also nominated for Carol so he's really well known by the Academy and I think could definitely show up 
Mm-hmm. I know score is like a really tight category already this year. But... It's the best category of the year, I think. Which is <laughs> <laughs> not something we always say. No. But it is exciting that it is. I like that. Yeah, I always think of Carter Burwell as being a collaborator of the Coen Brothers as well. So, you know, you've heard him on many Coen Brothers movies like True Grit, A Serious Man, No Country for Old Men. Like he, the, most recently, The Tragedy of Macbeth. But I love this score. It is so beautiful and sad. It's so evocative of Ireland that ma- it makes it feel like this old fable or an old tale sort of like I mentioned it makes it feel like it's sort of otherworldly and I love that about it it's one of my favorite scores of the year so I definitely think it can get in especially because while the category is definitely going to be crowded I think that this movie has the potential to hit a lot of voters and score could definitely be recognized so I hope that it is Mm -hmm. I think that's a great category I also I don't think it will get in here necessarily but I am hopeful I loved the cinematography. I thought it was beautifully shot by Ben Davis. I loved the cinematography. And he also shot three billboards. So again, another collaborator carried over from that. But yeah, I thought it looked beautiful, the whole movie. But I don't have it in there right now. And then I guess we can talk about performances. I think Colin Farrell will definitely get in. This is one where the Venice win kind of started his run. I don't know if it directly helps, but... It got the ball rolling. He'll be in for critics. Along with him, I think Martin McDonough will also be in the conversation. I think he could definitely make it in at the Oscars, which is more so just up in the air right now. But I would also love to see Barry Keoghan show up because I think it's maybe more showy, but it's definitely the most unique. I think with Colin, it's totally different because we see so many different sides to him. But it's more mellow. And with Barry, you get the quirkiness. You get things that we have seen before. We get some of that. Even like the Joker from the Batman this year. Just like he's kind of wild inside and he lets that out a little bit. So he's like the fun performance of the movie. And even Carrie Condon, I think she could definitely show up too. I do think it could show up in at least two, maybe even three at the Oscars, which is a huge showing. Yeah, so with supporting, the tricky thing is that Brendan Gleeson is run in supporting, so they're Mm -hmm. not doing a co-lead. I don't know how likely it is that Brendan and Barry can both get in, especially because we have, I think, a lot of big contenders this year with people running and supporting, like Ben Wishoff or Women Talking. We have a lot of supporting male performances in The Fablemans, so if that really is a big hit, multiple people from that could get in. Kihoi Kwan from Everything Everywhere All at Once. Like there are a lot of people in the running for supporting, but I would love to see both of them in. I do think that Brendan Gleeson will definitely get in. That feels like very likely to me. He has a sizable role in the movie. Like he is, he's the one who cuts his fingers off. And I have to say, I appreciate that Martin McDonough never shows that. Like it's gross. The violence happening. You see the fingers, yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. But you never actually see him cut them off which is which i appreciate i am really rooting for carrie condon to get in i loved her in this and she's been collaborating with martin mcdonough for a long time she's been in some of his stage plays and i feel like she she's fantastic and i hope that there's room for her in supporting actress i think there is colin farrell 
beautiful Colin Farrell. <laughs> I'm not going to let my judgment be affected by that, but I know everyone is talking about Brendan Fraser. I know that everyone supposedly wants him to win for the whale. But what I will warn people of, so let's, we're going to start here at Venice. Colin Farrell does beat Brendan Fraser in a head-to-head at Venice. I know Venice is a jury. I know it's different. But I can see a scenario where if the Academy does not like the whale, if it is polarizing, if it's something they don't love, and they really love the Banshees of Inisherin, Colin Farrell could win. I don't think it's over yet because I think I haven't seen the whale. So maybe this will change when I've seen it. But I think right now what Brendan Fraser has going for him is a narrative. I don't necessarily think that the performance itself is what's convincing people that he's going to win. I think it's a combination of the performance and a comeback narrative. I think people get really swept up in narratives, and that's why a lot of people just think he's going to win. He has all these tributes. He cries at standing ovations and is really grateful and seems like a wonderful person. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you win the Oscar at the end of the day if people don't like your movie. So there's a chance still, like nothing's sewn up. I know everyone likes to act like this is all locked up, even though we haven't seen a single (laughs) award yet. But there's definitely a chance that Colin Farrell can win, I think. I can see him winning BAFTA and then the movie's strong and he wins the Oscar. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I definitely still think it's a race. We'll see how some of these first award ceremonies come back and maybe if like New York or LA even choose him. I think that would be a pretty big notion to maybe push further. Has he been campaigning a lot? Maybe not as much as Brendan, but... He's been that penguin. (laughs) So he hasn't been able to campaign as much. Um, But he's been campaigning a little bit. He's been out and he has been doing some Q&As and some interviews. But yeah, I mean, he's just... He's not out there like Brendan Fraser Mm. is, so... I don't know. I don't want it to seem like I'm rooting against Brennan Fraser. I'm not. I just don't like when people act like everything is done when it's very much still open. And I do really love this performance. And I just still have hope that he will be recognized somewhere because I. it's also just not the kind of performance we see recognized in Best Actor very often. Like he's sensitive. Mm-hmm. He's emotional. He has so many great moments in this film where he is you know, going from being so down and sad to angry and drunk. Like he is he has so many wonderful moments in this film that I feel like really show that he has become a great dramatic actor. Like he isn't this two thousands pretty boy anymore, this character actor. Like I think he really has like found himself as an actor and I think that directors like really understand how to work with him now. And I think his other performance from after Yang Having that in the conversation will definitely help him this year as well. Yeah. I also forgot to mention costumes because I do love the costumes in the movie. Um, In particular, his sweaters. I love all of them. (laughs) So if you could give this movie one Oscar, would it be Colin Farrell? I feel like I'm betraying my dear Colin Farrell. No, I'm going to give it to Martin McDonough for original screenplay. It's so well written and... I love these characters. I love the setting and the tone and this beautiful, sad little civil war he created on this fictional island. What about you? I think I'm going to go with score for Burwell. Nice. I think it complements the story really well. It puts you in this meditative state as you're watching it. But 
I also think it's playful in a sense to play off of that comedy. Like this movie is so funny and that was really unexpected going into it, but I think it helps balance what you feel, what you go through throughout this movie really well cuz it does flow between like dark when we see Colm throwing his fingers at Paul Rick's door to other moments when we're just looking at the coast or Powerick is looking out into the distance or he's in the home and it's a much quieter, softer moment. So I like how it navigates everything in the movie. That's a great pick. And I think, again, we both highly recommend The Banshees of Inishir and it is out in theaters now. And last but not least, we'll be talking about Bardo, False Chronicle of a Handful of Truths. Description here, an acclaimed journalist turned documentarian goes on an oniric introspective journey to reconcile with the past, the present, and his Mexican identity. It's directed by Alejandro G. Inaritu, and it stars Daniel Jimenez Cacho, Griselda Siciliani, Jimena La Madrid, and Iker Sanchez Solano. So those four actors play the family. Silverio and Lucia are the parents, and then Camilla and Lorenzo are the children. I think this is Inaritu's most epic film he's trying to encapsulate his entire life and what he thinks is beyond so in that sense it's maybe one of the grandest films we have all year this is another netflix movie it's another two and a half hour feature and i think this is an even harder movie to watch at home and this is one that you and i saw together in the theater and i think that's the only reason why i finished watching it It feels like a very segmented movie, and it does finally come together. Like, the final quarter of the movie is really strung together beautifully and allows Inyaritu to say his final pieces on life and death and this literal bardo. And I did a little research on this word, and I think that whole spiral was maybe more interesting than my experience watching the movie, but it literally means this state between death and rebirth. So if you think about his soul throughout this movie and what is happening in his connection with his family, it's intense in a way, and it's very emotional and moving. It's kind of funny how we talk about these three movies because it is what Colm from Banshees is thinking about, this concept of like what does life mean and what what is after. But I think with... How this film has been received, it did very poorly at Venice, but since then they've cut back about 20 minutes. I'm curious how people fare with it now. I think it's very split because there are people who love it and some that still don't really like it. But how do you feel about this? And we can kind of transition into how we think the Academy will like this and how audiences may. Yeah, so I'm going to say something that will probably shock some people. This is my favorite in your Ritu film. Oh my god. <laughs> that is very shocking. To start though, like I am not a fan of Birdman or The Revenant, Babel. Like these movies are just not for me. So I went into this thinking there's no way I'm going to find anything from this movie that I like. And I told you at the end of the movie, I was very, very moved by it. I think that part of that is because of the elliptical dreamlike structure that is always something that i am on board with 
my favorite Altman movie mm-hmm. is Three Women. Like I, I love those movies that where you you don't know really what's happening. You can only grasp onto a mood or a feeling. And that's really it. So a lot of the movie I found honestly like very fascinating. It does have a surrealist quality to it. There's a big dance scene in the middle of it that I really liked. I agree with you though on the the runtime and the pacing of this movie. I was shocked to learn that this movie was shorter than Tar because to me it did feel about 45 minutes longer than Tar. If I had to estimate, I think part of that is just due to how you encounter these scenes. You sort of have to figure out if they're based in Silverio, this journalist, in his reality, or if they're dreams, or where he's where they're centered. Because nothing feels grounded. Everything sort of feels like it's in this bardo, like it's in this other realm or another layer. And I think that's really difficult to achieve. I think I understand some of the criticisms around the movie feeling indulgent because ultimately, like, this is a movie. Inyaritu says this is not an autobiographical story, but I don't necessarily see it that way entirely. I think there's a lot of him in Silverio. I think that a lot of people are comparing this movie to Fellini, but I actually think he's sort of trying to make his own version of all that jazz. I wonder if anyone has asked him that, because I think it is much more about his own death and contemplating death and how he might get there that I found compelling. I do think one thing that's here that he mentioned that a lot of American audiences aren't really getting is that this movie is sort of about, it's about the immigrant experience and about how if you're from one place and you try to go to another, like you're never really at home in either place. Like when you're dying, you exist in another realm altogether. So when he's in Mexico, the people around him there feel differently about him than Americans do, for instance, and he feels differently about those experiences. That was, I think, really thought-provoking for me. The biggest thing that I didn't like, which is the thing that everyone likes about this movie, was actually the cinematography. Mm -hmm. I thought there were some beautiful shots, but I I don't love his wide angle shots. I never have. It's always been something that has just taken me out of the movie. Yeah. It's the wide angle with like a fish lens where it looks like it bends outward. Yeah. To give this like bigger appearance to the screen. I think it works in instances, but when you have an entire movie shot like this, it's too much. I totally agree. Yeah. Like, there are some shots that I thought were really beautiful and others where I felt dizzy. It has a similar effect to me as a Baz Luhrmann movie. Well, like that dance scene you talk about, I think that's very Bazian. I loved that, though. It's so fun. It, like, gives you a perfect sense of the environment, though, and what those people, what the people are like there. Right. But the way it's shot, I think, has less to do with the camera itself and more of the extras, the people, the design, the set, everything that's on screen, the colors, how crisp everything looks and what's happening. You know, you can look everywhere and not see everything. He said like there were thousands and thousands of extras, which is insane. Like there were only a few instances of CGI that you'd notice in the movie. I mean, it starts off with a CGI baby that was very jarring. I didn't like that. Not at all. Apart from the jumping which 
during that part at the beginning, that was when you said, we can't see movies together because we both started giggling. And it was silent. I just had to close my eyes and not imagine you laughing next to me. Well, that felt like a very typical in your Ritu opening where I just thought, oh, no. We have mm-hmm. almost three hours of go. this. Here we go. I can't do this. But then yeah. I was a bit more surprised as we went on. But you have that. And then he has so many of these extras. And he talks about this other scene where there are cars trying to leave. And all of them are real. So the decisions were very deliberate, which I appreciate. I love that from a director when he wants everything to feel real. But getting back to the cinematography, another scene, we had this battle sequence that, again, you're wondering, is this real, imagined? But the lens, again, it's like there is a battle happening and you want to focus your attention, but it's hard to with how it's being shown. Because the camera, when you have this, moves differently and it gives you it gives you this different perspective. And it's not nauseating, but it is a little disorienting. Mm-hmm. So Oscar-wise, this is Mexico's submission for international feature. I think that's an important thing to note. I feel like it has a really easy chance with making it to the shortlist, more so than others we've talked about. And also because Inyaritu's films always get nominated, and a lot of them are for acting. So I think in this instance, it could show up in a lot of different categories that some other films usually don't have that ability to achieve so yeah i guess getting into categories specifically how do you feel about its chances so my opinions on this movie haven't really changed all season and what i mean by that is before this movie even premiered at venice i think people were really eager to see it flop or you know to not include it in the conversation i think that a lot of critics don't like inyaritu And this was really evident in a lot of those early reviews. And because of that, I think when people saw all the negative reviews, they were very eager to just say, like, this movie is dead. Nothing's going to happen with it. It might not even get into international feature. I don't buy that for a second. Because at our screening, people reacted very positively to this movie. Like, it wasn't just us as we... We're sort of sitting there like, how long is this movie? You know, what is, what's going on here? Like people were having really emotional responses to it. And the way that Inyaritu talks about this film, talks about his experiences as an immigrant, talks about what this film means to him, the how it's dreamlike and surrealist, that works with people in the industry. And he won Best Director two years in a row. That does not happen. Like, you and I talk about people who win multiple times. Like, it, it's so rare to have that happen. Mm-hmm. And we can't count someone like that out. I think it's it's going to get into international feature, I think. Like you said, his films get nominated. And with 22 minutes cut off of this movie, it is playing better to crowds. It is in theaters right now in New York and L.A. And it'll probably expand to some other cities and before it goes on Netflix. Other categories, though, I still think it's possible that he gets into a director. Would you be shocked if that happened? I think it would be less shocked by him showing up and more shocked by whose spot he'd be taking. Mm-hmm. Like, who isn't going to show up if he's there? I don't think this is one of the top five. 
like if we're gonna boil this down to five best picture nominees i don't think this is in there i don't know if it's even in the 10 i I don't know that's what i'm unsure about is like is it in the 10 because academy members love him or does it just not show up at all maybe an actor i don't even know how i feel about that so i feel like that could happen especially again as the academy is getting more international like i said this is a story about immigration and about otherness and belonging and life and death and i think that story resonates with voters so i i don't know like i i definitely think that it can it can get in with director though it is hard because i don't know whose place he takes either more directors who make films in languages other than english they get in and with someone who's already won before i think the difference with this movie versus the ones you've just mentioned is that there was so much appeal behind them And we're still at a point in the award season that it may be too early to know. This hasn't officially come out on Netflix. I don't know how much of the Academy has seen this yet, but I feel like at this point last year, there was so much love for Drive My Car. Like it was unstoppable. Mm -hmm. And so far, this movie has kind of wavered. And if we're talking about like one or maybe two slots for these international features to get into the top categories, that's really hard to do. Not saying like it should be that way, but I don't look favorably onto Inuritu or Bardo or, you know, it's showing up in a lot of these categories if the response is mixed. So it does, I think, depend on critics and then other awards and how the Academy takes it too. Yeah. I think what what worries me or what scares me with this one is I can totally see a world where it just appears on Oscar nomination morning. Oh, yeah. Out of nowhere. It's like Daniel Jimenez Cacho for Bardo in actor, like something like that. I just it's in the back of my head and I can't ignore it. It's just there's Mm -hmm. something about his movies that connect with the Academy. Um, And I think with text too, like production design is absolutely possible. Um, This movie is big. Like you said, it's epic. It has a lot of set pieces in it, and it's very, very colorful. Cinematography, Darius Kanji as well. I think that's also a possibility. So, I don't know. This one is a big question mark for me. Score by Inyari to himself. I think that was a really strong element. But I think I'm just, I'm curious to see how Netflix does it this year. What they prioritize, what gets in. Maybe it's better for them not to have one big movie and to just have a few that get into multiple categories. So if you could give Bardo one Oscar, what would it be? I'm going to sound like a broken record. I'm going to say score for Inyaritu and Desner. Inyaritu has done some scores before, but as of late, like this is his biggest one. For Desner, he worked on The Revenant with Inyari 2. He did Cyrano. Come on, come on. So other movies that have been in the awards conversation, I think he could definitely show up. What would you give it? I think I would give it production design. The production designer here is Eugenio Caballero. He won an Oscar for Pan's Labyrinth and was nominated for Roma. I think this movie is really beautiful. I especially love the scenes when they're at home and you get to see like the design of of their house. Um, You get to see so many beautiful 
magnificent set pieces in Mexico, but also in LA. I think it's really beautifully designed. So I would give a production design. I like that too. I think that's another great choice that could actually show up. Okay, so that was our first award season roundup. We'll have a few more coming over the next month or two. You can check out Bardo on Netflix on December 16th if it's not already in theaters or coming to you soon in a theater. And then All Quiet on the Western Front is on Netflix now. You can watch that. And then, like we said, The Banshees of Inishirin is in theaters. Definitely movies that you should check out. These are all sort of ruminations on life and death, each of these movies, in very different ways. So I do think there's something for everyone in each of these movies. And next time on Oscar Wilde's, We have an episode that we're so excited for. We are welcoming back our dear friends, Connor and Dylan McDowell of the Drama Podcast to celebrate the 20th anniversary of the Best Picture winning movie musical, Chicago. So excited to have them back on and to talk about this movie, a musical that I rated five stars. So I think there's a lot to discuss here. We'll get all of their knowledge about the stage version and the drama there. Literally (laughs) drama. (laughs) So I can't wait for that. Yeah, it's going to be so much fun to have them back. And if you want to get to know them better, you can listen to their podcast, The Drama Podcast, which is great. They interview talent from Broadway. They have a very exciting episode out this week that everyone should be very excited for. And you can also listen to our episode last year with them where we reviewed West Side Story. So they're always a fun time. I can't wait to have them back. And if you like our show, please feel free to rate, review, and subscribe. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Oscar Wilde Pod. And if you really like our show, you can subscribe to us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Oscar Wilde. We have a bonus series that lives there. We post fun polls and sort of be ramping it up come award season. So if you want non-award season content during award season, that will be the place for it. And thank you all for listening. We will see you next week. Mm